This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Hormone replacement therapy should be the first treatment offered to women under 60 to treat menopause. And May is a great time to birdwatch as the hobby is soaring to new heights. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. New research shows that stroke rates are declining in those 75 and older, but rising in young and middle-aged adults. Researchers found an 11% overall rise in intracerebral hemorrhage strokes over a 15-year period, and the increases were highest in younger and those middle-aged. This type of stroke is more deadly and disabling than other types. Experts call the study's findings alarming and say it stresses the need for earlier intervention. They blame rising obesity rates and people not knowing the warning signs for the rise. The World Health Organization is warning against using artificial sweeteners, saying continued use does not reduce weight and could increase the risk of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and mortality in adults. Some examples of the sweeteners include aspartame, saccharin, sucralose, and stevia. The WHO's announcement contradicts previous studies that have said these sweeteners don't offer any health benefits but also do not cause harm. The recommendation from the World Health Organization does not directly affect any individual country's policy. On the heels of France getting the court's approval to raise the pension age, one U.K. minister says his nation will have to raise the retirement age to 68, up from 66, after the next election. Pensions Secretary Mel Strike says the change will have to come within the first couple of years of the next parliament after it was delayed because of stalling life expectancy. But he assures residents they'll get 10 years' notice before any change takes place. The current pension retirement age in the UK is 66. A similar move prompted countrywide riots and protests in France. Americans are keeping their cars longer than ever before. SMP Global Mobility finds the average age of a passenger vehicle on U.S. roads hit a record 12 and a half years this year. People are holding on to sedans an average 13.6 years. Analysts say pandemic-related shortages of computer chips drastically slowed assembly lines, making new vehicles scarce and pushing prices to record highs. In Canada, 7 in 10 are replacing their vehicles long before their best before date, ditching them in less than 10 years. A Hebrew Bible that's one of the world's oldest surviving biblical manuscripts has sold for $38 million in New York. The auction house Sotheby's says the 1,100-year-old Codex Sassoon was purchased by former U.S. Ambassador to Romania Alfred H. Moses and donated to a museum in Tel Aviv. It's one of the highest prices ever fetched for a manuscript at auction. When my grandmother was a teenager sketching these dresses, I'm sure she envisioned seeing them on a model or maybe on a runway one day. Nearly 90 years later, it is finally coming true. 
A granddaughter has created her grandmother's fashion designs, and they've gone viral. Back in the 1940s, Georgie, now in her 90s, shelved her design sketch pad, thinking her fashion life was over. Fast forward to 2021, the granddaughter Julia, now 27, uncovered the long-forgotten drawings and was blown away by her grandmother's talent. After she posted designs of the vintage ball gowns and others online, the feedback was overwhelming, so she decided to create some. Their designs are now followed by millions, and the nonagenarian Georgie has even started sketching again. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A review of scientific literature published this week is not offering new advice, according to one expert in the field of gynecology who has 30 years' experience studying menopause and who helped author guidelines for women looking for relief. The study just published in the Canadian Medical Association reinforces a shift already underway that hormone replacement therapy should be the first treatment offered to menopausal women to help manage symptoms. And it also highlights the overstated risk of HRT from two decades ago. We reached Dr. Jennifer Blake, professor and past CEO of the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. There has been a lot of talk this week about hormone replacement therapy. It's not usually in the headlines. This week it is. Why are we talking about it? Women have been speaking up and talking about the issues that they're having in menopause. And it is finally coming out of the dark corner and, and is back on the, on the, in the center of, of discussion. In the midst of this, uh, there's a paper that's come out in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that pulls together uh, some of the research that has been slowly accumulating over the past 20 years and also draws our attention to guidelines which have uh, been addressing this issue over the past many years. But None of that got traction until women started making their voices heard. So this so-called new advice that hormone replacement therapy should be the first line of treatment for women is really not that new. It's not that new. It's actually consistent with the advice that's come from the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, from the Canadian Menopause Society, from the North American Menopause Society, from the International Menopause Society, from the British Menopause Society. I could go on. So this doesn't really debunk the old data, but it's kind of corrective new guidance, I guess, meant meant for doctors and women, a certain subset well, think, of women. Yes, I mean, the, the old data was always had its limitations. It was a study of 16,000 women, most of whom were in their mid-60s, 63 was the average age going into the study, and many of whom had a lot of other health issues. So to begin to actually sort out from that study what is the relevant advice for women going through menopause, which is typically women in their late 40s and early 50s, turns out to be very different from uh, the health um, considerations that you have for women as they get older. And the women in that study, many of them were quite a bit older. I've heard other doctors in the news this week caution that it is good treatment for menopausal symptoms, but Maybe talk to your patients and say, don't be using it for other other purposes, for disease prevention and whatnot. But for menopausal symptoms, it should be the first line of defense. The biggest question that, that I have concerns about, are we doing women a disservice by not telling them that in the, the studies, although um, the studies 
were not properly designed to answer the question for young women, the answer is that in young women, they did have reduced cardiovascular disease and mortality when compared to women who were on the placebo arm. So there actually was preventive benefit that was found, but the study wasn't properly designed for that. And that's why everyone is saying, we aren't there yet. We can't tell you that this is going to prevent disease. The reality is, though, that so much of prevention of cardiovascular disease should not be by taking a medication. It should be by doing all the right things in our lifestyle. And we know that 90% of cardiovascular disease, if you don't smoke, if you don't drink excessively, if you keep your blood pressure down, eat a healthy diet, exercise, all of those things are going to be good for your heart, be good for your brain, be good for everything that you do. What we do know is that exposure to hormones, so women who go through menopause earlier reduce their breast cancer risk compared to women who go through menopause later who slightly increase it. It's not a big difference, but it's measurable. There's lots of things in our lives that shift our risk of breast cancer. Women who have a term pregnancy before they turn 30 have a reduced risk of breast cancer forever um, because their breasts have gone through that that whole experience of becoming mammary uh, glands, producing breast milk, and that that differentiation in the breast reduces our risk of breast cancer. I don't know too many people who are worrying about whether they've had their first pregnancy prior to the age of 30 because of breast cancer risk, and I have not seen our workplace employment laws changing to really um, support and encourage women to have pregnancies in their 30s because of breast cancer risk. But the risk that comes from having a baby after the age of 30, the increase in breast cancer risk, is the same as the risk of a woman who uses five years of hormone therapy after menopause. It's not a one-size-fits-all. The only thing that uh, I think that we have learned consistently is that the safest time to initiate hormone therapy is within the first 10 years after your menopause. But honestly, that's when most people are symptomatic. But but if you're trying to just um, grin and bear it and it's not working, it, it is time to reassess is that really the right strategy for you because there is a time beyond which it's less safe to start hormone therapy because of the risk of blood clots in the legs. Thank you so much for this. Oh, you're very welcome. That was Dr. Jennifer Blake, professor and CEO of the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, spring migration is in full swing, and bird species that spent the winter away are flying north. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Spring has sprung as bird watching takes flight, with more of us paying attention to tweets and not the Twitter variety. 
Fifty million birds will visit Toronto this spring, and there are dozens of events on the calendar for bird enthusiasts who learned this week that after 50 years, Ontario has just removed bald eagles from its at-risk list. Ironically, while the hobby grows in popularity, bird populations are declining. Jody Allaire is director of community engagement with Birds Canada. Let's say someone is going out this weekend, this long weekend, and they want to start bird watching, and they're a beginner, and they're not really sure what to do. What's your advice for them? Yeah, so this is such a great time to be out birding. It's it's mid May and it's peak migration through the Greater Toronto Area. So if you want to go out and see like warblers and thrushes and flycatchers all singing and all in like unbelievably gorgeous, you know, uh, plumage like American redstarts, Blackburnian warblers. Like just Google those birds; they're out of control gorgeous. And if you want to see them, um, all you need to do. Around the GTA is go to a you know check out if there are events happening with the Toronto Bird Celebration, but go to a local park, go wandering around High Park,、um, go down to the Leslie Street Street Spit, go to any sort of green space or green area、um, within the city, and you will be able to encounter these spring migrants. Is it true that birding it, or is the number one sport in America? I guess or hobby? Yes, it is. It is、uh, like. Spending time like casually watching birds, whether it's just like looking at the birds at your feeder, or you know going to birding festivals or traveling,、um, is one of one of the most popular outdoor recreational activities in, in North America. Do you think the pandemic has anything to do with the rise in popularity? Well, I think birding was already really popular, but yes, th- there was a, a, a massive pandemic bump、uh, for people that wanted to. Uh, engage with birding, and I, and I think it's quite fascinating. You know, at a time when things were really uncertain and and things were very stressful, and I, and I realize we're not totally out of the pandemic right now, but、um, but there were those moments, especially in in in、uh, you know twenty twenty and twenty twenty one, a lot of people were looking for activities、uh, to escape and and going outside, spending time in nature and. Exploring the birds that live near your house or in your local green space,、uh, people just discovered that. People found that this was, you know, something they could do. Scientific papers prove that just getting outside in nature has significant health benefits. It, yeah, that's right. So, so it was kind of interesting. It's you know, so I've been you know, I've been a birder since I was a kid,、um, and certainly the great thing, one of the great things about birding is it, it doesn't matter where you are or. Or how old you are, or what your education is—none of that matters. Birding is accessible and there for everyone. Birding is for everyone, and that's that's one of the great, that's one of the best things about it. And and birds are just incredible. Seeing your first cardinal up close, or your first bald eagle or blue jay—you know, like it really is a pretty cool thing to see these these amazing, beautiful-looking creatures up close. You spend time out in nature,、um, it will reduce anxiety. It will reduce. People's cortisol levels, the stress-related hormones that are, that are through your body. So there's all these positive spin-offs. There are so many advances、um, in technology to help with the hobby. I've seen there are apps that can recognize bird chirps and songs and all things, all kinds of things. It's such a great time to get into birding. So in line with the pandemic and people needing something to do close to their home, there was、uh, you know the arrival or the eventual arrival of. The Merlin Bird ID app, which has been around for a few years, but at that point they had just launched like a sound ID feature. So you can use this free Merlin Bird ID app. It's from our 
from our friends down at Cornell Lab of Ornithology in the U.S., who we partner on in so many programs here. And you can use this free app to help you recognize the birds singing out in your yard or out in your local green space. And so, you know, having a Maryland Bird ID app, getting, you know, getting a field guide from your local library, if you can track down a pair of binoculars that, that are still functioning properly or you buy a pair, like those are just some simple tools and it really opens up uh, a whole world. A quick Google search will show there are quite a few um, bird festivals coming up this this month in Toronto in, as well. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, so the Toronto Bird Celebration is on right now. And this is a program that, that Birds Canada runs with numerous partners uh, across Toronto to provide all sorts of in-person events and virtual events. Yeah, highly recommend uh, visit Toronto Bird Celebration. Uh, website, and you can see all sorts of great opportunities to get involved. And you know, and this is this is one of the one of the things I want to add about the benefits of birding is that yes, there's the engagement in nature, and birding is super fun. But it's also a great way to find a community. There's a, there's a big community of birders and bird enthusiasts, and you know, and for the most part, it's it's very welcoming. Are bird populations declining? Well, yes, they are. You know, in Canada, um, we've seen really since. Since uh, the 1970s, we've seen some bird populations have, have increased. You know, uh, birds of prey and a lot of waterfowl uh, have increased quite significantly in number, although that now may change with, with avian flu. But we've seen major groups of birds in Canada have done massive declines in numbers that we're quite concerned about, that Birds Canada is quite concerned about. And it's, the, it's one of the things that motivates our conservation work across Canada. Um, three of these groups of birds, grassland birds, uh, shorebirds, especially these like sandpipers and plovers that go up to the Arctic, and then the group of birds called aerial insectivores. So those are the group of birds that fly around and catch insects in the air. So things like barn swallows and common nighthawks and chimney swifts in, in Toronto. In fact, we have an, a, a whole program, Swift Watch, that's monitoring chimney swifts within the, within the GTA. All of those groups of birds are declining by 30, even up to 70%. It's really tough to conserve something unless you understand it and you care about it. And getting into birds and building those connections with birds is one of those first steps that you need to do before you really start understanding why birds are so important to the ecosystem, even to our own health. And if more people are birding, I would love to think that there's more people that are going to get tuned into conservation. Jody Allaire, thank you so much for this. Hey, my pleasure. That was Jody Allaire, Director of Community Engagement with Birds Canada. And when it comes to avian flu, Jody tells us it's an issue for some birds, including waterfowl, but not songbirds, so it's still safe to go out birding. Just don't touch or handle dead birds. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.